Amen. So 10,000 at least of that 500,000 is gonna come from Woodmont. I'm confident that we can raise $5,000 here among, that's a stretch goal, that's more than we gave last year. But this ministry was started by Tennessee Baptist and we do a lot with uh, Friends Life, which is an amazing organization that, that works with adults with special needs. This is the same thing, but it's a residential program for adults with special needs. One of our preschool workers who uh, has a brother with special needs, he lives in one of the Tennessee Baptist adult homes in Lebanon. It's an amazing organization. So Morgan and I gave online uh, to the Father's Day offering. I pray that you will prayerfully consider how you can give to this very important and special ministry with your tithes and offerings. Uh, not tithes, your offering that goes above your tithe. <laughs> Uh, some of you know that today's a special day, it's Father's Day, but it's also uh, a day where we can celebrate the legacy and heritage of Woodmont Baptist Church. It's Vita Sherman's 90th birthday today. Let's give Vita a hand. Happy birthday, Vita. We're so proud of what the Lord's done in your life. Yes, is it okay that I say 90? You're not supposed to tell a woman's age, but 90's a big deal. And, uh, we're so thankful for what the Lord's done over your 90 years and, and Dr. Sherman as well. Uh, we are gonna have a special 80th anniversary celebration, August 15th, mark your calendars. I'm so ready to eat a meal with our church family. We have rented two big tents. We've ordered barbecue for 300. Uh, it's gonna be an awesome party uh, to celebrate what the Lord's done. And then the next week, the youth and Evan are gonna lead worship as we celebrate the future of our church and where we're heading. So uh, just an exciting time in the life of our church. Mark your calendars, invite your friends and family August 15th. It's gonna be a wonderful day of fellowship and uh, Dr. Sherman's gonna bring a word uh, from the Bible that morning. It's gonna be a great day, so mark your calendars. Uh, I've talked about this before, but I went to Australia in 2003. I went four times, but the, 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 the third time I went was after my junior year in college. And, some of my friends at the church that I was working with in Australia said, let's go see the glowworms in the Janolan Caves. There are these caves that are south of Sydney, and I thought they were pranking me. I thought glowworms weren't like a real thing, but they, apparently they are real. Like, let's go see the glowworms, okay. No, they, they really are glowworms, and these caves aren't really caves. They're like man-made mining tunnels uh, that were used for uh, extracting ore uh, a long time ago. So you walk in like the mine entrance and you have plenty of light, but as you go down the mine shaft, the light quickly fades behind you and you can't use a flashlight. You know what they call flashlights in Australia? It's just fun. Torches, yeah, torches. You can't use a torch because the light uh, will make the glowworms not glow. So you're not supposed to use any light. And I said, well, this is, Silly, this is an exercise in futility because we're, we're trying to walk down this mine shaft with like 20 people where we can't see anywhere where we're going. And I still think glowworms may not be real because I'm not seeing anything on the walls and the light has long since faded behind us and we're just kind of walking with a hand on the shoulder of the person in front of you just trusting that your next step is not gonna be on a snake because all the snakes in Australia can kill you. I don't think they live in caves, but uh, I was still scared of snakes. And we're walking and just trusting and hoping that, that we're going the right direction. And eventually we got to where the glowworms are and it's weird, it's like this otherworldly kind of neon uh, bluish glow that they give off. It's, it's an incredible thing to see. It really is a, a miracle of God's uh, wonder and creation. 
And I think the Christian life is kind of like this. We don't know what tomorrow holds. We don't know. We're not guaranteed to make it home from this service today. We don't have any idea where we'll be in five years. We, we're just walking forward, always tempted to run back to the safety of what we know is the entrance where there's some light and where we can go back to what is familiar and, and what is uh, safe and comfortable. But if we do that, we're gonna miss out. We're gonna miss out on the wonder of what God has for us if we will continue to walk by faith. That's what Isaiah has been telling us throughout this whole first half of the book of Isaiah, that there's something beautiful, there's something beyond ourselves, something beyond human achievement, if we'll just trust him and continue to walk forward. But we make our little human plans, you know, the best plans that we can to prepare as we move forward, but ultimately we're, we're all betting our progress, we're all betting our future on some kind of foundation. For Christians, we put our trust, our ultimate heart hope in the sovereign Lord of all creation. We walk by faith in Him, not by sight, not by a flashlight or a torch, not by our current bank account balance, not by the degrees that we have hanging on our wall. I got a few, Jamie Dunham signed one of mine. Uh, not by our own ability, not by our own ingenuity, not by our own uh, health or attractiveness or winsomeness, not by anything else of this world. Because to walk by faith is to be a spiritual person. Christians are necessarily spiritual people. We're not atheistic pragmatists. We follow a higher way, an infinitely higher way, which is also, we believe, an infinitely better way to live than the ways that the world offers us. Yes, the Christian faith is immensely reasonable. If you don't believe that, read Reason for God by Tim Keller. It is a reasonable faith, but we still do things that by the world's standards may be seen as odd or out of step with what makes sense. I have a friend who's not a believer who thinks that Christians are pretty much borderline insane because we believe that we can talk to the living God. And even more scary to him, we believe that God speaks to us today. We believe that God reveals himself to us through our prayer lives, through scripture, through meditation. We believe that the, the Lord wants to show us himself and his ways. You know, one of the coolest parts of the SBC convention, and there were a few that were pretty cool, believe it or not, um, was when the former president of the SBC, Bryant Wright, he's the current NAM president, the North American Mission Board, he got up to speak at the platform when they were presenting the order of business, just kind of like, here's what we're gonna do today. And he said, yeah, I don't think we should spend that 10 minutes that was traditionally reserved for recognizing the past presidents of which he is one. He said, we shouldn't do that. We should use that time better by spending it in prayer. I, I move that we get rid of the recognition of past presidents and we just go to our knees in prayer during that time. And he said, Jesus told us 
that where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am with them. That there's power in the gathered body going to the Lord in prayer. That it actually changes us. It changes things. That God moves in power when his people are united in prayer. He's a spiritual person. He actually believes that. And his motion passed overwhelmingly. No one wants to spend time recognizing those past presidents anyway. In our text for today, Isaiah 36 and a little bit of 37, we're going to see a crisis come to a head. We've been talking about the Assyrian crisis the whole time. We're going to see that crisis come to a head for God's people. We all face these times in our lives where the rubber meets the road, and we have to decide in those moments, and hopefully before we find ourselves in those moments, where we're going to put our trust, on what we're going to bet our lives on. Ray Ortland says that in this text, God is calling us to live by a daring faith because the world is daring us to live by faith in God. I'll say that again. God's calling us to live by a daring faith because the world is daring us to live by faith in God. We're going to see in this text how human skepticism throws down the gauntlet before God's people. What do you really believe? In whom do you place your trust? That's a direct quote. People who are spiritual people, people who actually believe in the living God, God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, as the creed says. Before we dive into our text, it's important to just give some background. Chapters 36 through 39 are like this historical transition between the poetic sections of Isaiah 1 to 35 and Isaiah 40 to 66. It kind of shows us that all this prophecy that the, the, the prophet Isaiah has been speaking in this poetic way is actually grounded in reality. That God's promises, his prophecies for us are not just true ultimately. They're not just true in some ethereal spiritual way, but they're real, they are good, that they have real roots in the here and now, that they actually matter in the present physical world just as much as they do in the spiritual world. So this whole section is going to be this uh, time in 701 BC when we, we talked about the Assyrian army finally shows up at Jerusalem's front door. They've been marching throughout the, the region of Judah conquering city after city, and finally they've arrived at Jerusalem. We talked about how King Hezekiah, the king of the, the people of Judah, tried to make a deal, and he stripped the gold off the temple and tried to pay the Assyrian king, Sennacherib, tried to pay him off as a bribe, and they were so proud, they said, well, we figured that out, we solved the problem, but Sennacherib took all the gold and said, thanks, uh, we're still going to kill you. <laughs> we're still going to come in. He double-crossed them which Hezekiah was shocked at, but he shouldn't have been. So what we're going to see is that this savage, brutal Assyrian army is so overwhelming to God's people, they have nowhere left to turn but to the living God. Sometimes you don't realize God is all you need until God is all you have. This section is really divided into two scenes. Chapter 36 is all about the threat, and then we're going to get to chapter 37, which is all about the promise. 
So let's start with the threat in verses one to two. Hear now the word of the Lord. In the 14th year of King Hezekiah, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came up against all the fortified cities of Judah and took them. And the king of Assyria sent the Rabshakeh, that's a cool word that I get to, get to say about 20 times today. Uh, we don't know what it means. No one knows what it means. It apparently refers to a high-ranking uh, official in the Assyrian uh, army. He sent the Rabshakeh from Lachish to King Hezekiah at Jerusalem with a great army. He stood by the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field. So here comes Sennacherib's representative, his great army, as it says in verse two, gathered at the washer's field. This has happened before. Do you remember, just nod your heads because it makes me feel good. In Isaiah chapter seven, when we talked about how Assyria, Assyria, not Assyria, Syria and Israel, the northern kingdom, had formed an alliance against uh, Assyria and they wanted to force Judah. Thank you, Christy. She's nodding her head like, yeah, I remember that. I bet you really do. You're really sharp. Uh, they formed an alliance and they wanted to force Judah to join their alliance so they'd have a better shot at withstanding the Assyrian army. And so Israel and Syria show up at the washer's field just outside the gates of Jerusalem. Isaiah chapter seven, verse three says, the Lord said to Isaiah, go out to meet Ahaz. That was the, the king before Hezekiah. That was Hezekiah's daddy. You and Shear Jeshub, your son, Isaiah's kid. They, they were supposed to go out to the washer's field to meet them. That's where he went to confront this great army. Isaiah and his son go out to meet Ahaz and they call on him to turn to God and cry out for the Lord to save them, but the king doesn't. Ahaz, unlike Hezekiah, they, they face a very similar crisis, but Ahaz looks to Egypt to save them. He looks to things of this world. They have very similar choices. Will they trust in the Lord or will they trust in the things of this world? when they're there at the washer's field. The Rabshakeh shows up at the washer's field this time with the great Assyrian army behind him. And of course, he doesn't believe in God. He doesn't believe in any kind of living God. So he dares, he just dares Hezekiah to make a, a different choice than Ahaz did. He dares him to bank everything on a spiritual solution, to bank everything on this God that he's been hearing about. In verses four to 10, the key word is trust. The Rabshakeh uses the word trust seven times in these seven verses. And the Arabic word that he would have been more familiar with that it derives from the Hebrew word for trust implies throwing yourself face down, prostrate before someone else, completely surrendering and completely throwing yourself on their mercy. It's about complete and utter dependence. It's, this kind of trust isn't like an intellectual, like, oh, I believe in God the Father Almighty. It's, it's actually prostrating yourself before this idea and, and banking everything on it as you surrender and as you totally depend on that in which you trust. You know, it's really the heart of the matter. This is what we're gonna see in verses three to five. Hezekiah sends some of his officials out to meet the Rabshakeh. Look at verses three to five. 
And there they, they came out to him, Eliakim, out to the Rabshakeh, Eliakim, son of Hilkiah, who was over the household, Shebna, the secretary, and Joah, the son of Asaph, the recorder. And the Rabshakeh said to them, Say to Hezekiah, thus says the great king, Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, on what do you rest this trust of yours? Do you think that mere words are strategy and power for war? Do you think that mere words are strategy and power for war? In whom do you now trust that you have rebelled against me, the great king of Assyria, Sennacherib? Just leave that there, Gabe. We're gonna talk about this verse for a second. Sennacherib and the Rabshakeh think that the mere words of God are no useful strategy that's not pragmatic, it's not practical for fighting an actual war. The Assyrians were the first civilization we know from history to use iron in their weapons. They had superior uh, technology, militarily speaking. They believed that real strength came through ruthless military might. Is Hezekiah really so crazy to stand against iron weapons with the mere words of the Lord? That really is the heart of the matter. God's words, his revelation of himself to us, fully revealed in the person of Jesus Christ, his only son. He's graciously shown himself to us. His gospel proclamation, his living word that has caused us to be born again to a living hope, as our choir just sang. The, the proclamation that God is good, that he's in control, that he has a plan to redeem this fallen world, and that he loves us with unbelievable, amazing grace. Do we understand these words as actually being effective against the realities of this world? This section of Isaiah calls on us to examine whether or not we believe that God's words are supreme, not just at the end of our lives, again, but in the here and now. Is there a secret to life that we can find in the self-help books? Andy was telling me about some secular atheist author who wrote a book about these 12 rules for living life or will make you happy and healthy and you'll flourish. Is there a, a, a book like that, that that we can find in the self-help section at Amazon? that will show us the way to really flourish in life? Or is God's word, are his words to us truly life-giving? Do they lead to shalom, peace, and prosperity? Do they create life? Are they life-giving? Do they lead to flourishing and thriving, not just for us? I'm not talking about the kind of car you drive. I'm talking about God's good purposes for flourishing in the world, for reducing uh, the, the, the hellish circumstances in the world and making earth more like heaven. Is God's word sufficient? The king of Assyria then asked, in whom do you now trust that you have rebelled against me? In whom do you now trust? You don't trust in me, so who do you trust? Trust and loyalty always work hand in hand. We obey whomever or whatever we trust. Trust comes with practical 
consequences. We follow what we trust. We have some realtors in our church. You know, you trust your realtor in this crazy job market to make good decisions for you. And you follow. There are practical uh, consequences for doing uh, what your realtor says because you trust them. I would even say we become like what we trust. We resemble what we trust. So the Rabshakeh keeps on trying to intimidate these officials from Hezekiah. He's trying to intimidate everyone around him with a bunch of half-truths and arrogant, braggadocious kind of talk, and it terrifies everyone who hears it. They don't want, the Jewish officials don't want everyone around to hear how dire the situation actually is. Look at verse 11. Then Eliakim, Shebna, Joah said to the Rabshakeh, please speak to your servants in Aramaic, for we understand it. Don't speak to us in the language of Judah within the hearing of the people who are on the wall. Everybody's hearing what you're saying. Shh, just use a different language. Aramaic was the language of business and not the common people wouldn't understand it. But the guy just keeps going in Hebrew, of course, bringing a fear of a massive siege. You know what a siege is when they surround the city and they just stay there for as long as they can. Look at verse 12. But the Rabshakeh said, has my master sent me to speak these words to your master and to you and not to the men sitting on the wall who are doomed with you to eat their own dung and drink their own urine? Gross. That is the consequences of a siege. But then in verses 13 to 21, the Rabshakeh ratches up the threat another notch, still yelling in the Hebrew language. Look at verse 13. Then the Rabshakeh stood and called out in a loud voice in the language of Judah. He's still speaking Hebrew. He doesn't care. Hear the words of the great king, the king of Assyria. Thus says the king, do not let Hezekiah deceive you, for he will not be able to deliver you. In this section, the key word is deliver. What you're going to see is who is able to deliver is the key question. To deliver means to rescue, to, to snatch away from danger, to save. Here we see the king of Assyria pitted against the king of glory, the king of grace, the king of heaven. In verse 14, the Rabshakeh makes it clear that Sennacherib is the king who is able to save. The same thing in verses 15 to, to 18. Do not let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord by saying, the Lord will surely deliver us. This city will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Don't let him say that. Don't listen to Hezekiah. For thus says the king of Assyria, make your peace with me and come out to me. Then each one of you will eat of his own vine and each one of his own fig tree. That's an old Israeli uh, blessing. And each one of you will drink the water of his own cistern until I come and take you away to a land like your own land, a land of grain and wine, a land of bread and vineyards. Beware lest Hezekiah mislead you by saying the Lord will deliver us. You can see the logic of Satan at work here, can't you? These lies that sound good. You're going to love it. It's going to be great. You'll be slaves, sure. But you're going to love it. You'll wear chains the rest of your life, but it's going to be great. The food's good. The, you know, these promises that Satan gives us. 
You know, what is the, the phrase that sin always under-promises and, or over-promises and under-delivers? That sin always takes you farther than you wanted to go. It always makes you pay more than you wanted to pay. And it makes you stay longer than you wanted to stay. That's the truth of the ways of our enemy. And they're effective. You all know people who've made a shipwreck of their lives because of sin. We all do it. May your, make your peace with me, says the enemy. Then you can flourish. Then you'll have your own stuff to enjoy, except it'll be my stuff, really. But I'll let you have it for a while. It's a great place to live, my place. You're going to love it, trust me, as slaves. How many people, again, fall for these lies? They're lies that are not meant for your good. Our enemy has come to what? Steal, kill, and destroy. He's trying to kill you physically, emotionally, mentally, and most of all, spiritually. But our God came, why? That we may have life and life to the fullest. Hezekiah wisely ordered his delegation not to get into negotiations, don't get in the back and forth with the Rabshakeh. Look at verses 21 to 22. They were silent and answered him not a word, for the king's command was, do not answer him. Then Eliakim, son of Hilkiah, who was over the household, Shebna, the secretary, and Joah, the son of Asaph, the recorder, came to Hezekiah with their clothes torn and told him the words of the Rabshakeh. This is a turning point in the story. This is a turning point in the story of God's people forever and ever. They're on the brink of extinction. They're overwhelmed by a superior force. The Assyrians already wiped out uh, the northern kingdom of Israel in 722 BC. They're gone. They're shipped off as slaves. Now Judah, Jerusalem alone, stands as the remnant of God's people facing a superior force. Hezekiah has nowhere to run. He's already tried to pay uh, Sennacherib off. That didn't work. He's out of time, he's out of options. So unlike his father Ahaz, he goes to the one place where he knows the source of power ultimately stays. Look at uh, chapter 37, verse one, a place where he can get honest with the Lord. As soon as King Hezekiah heard it, he tore his clothes and covered himself with sackcloth and went into the house of the Lord. The word Lord with all caps like that means the living God, the name of the one true God. And Hezekiah sent Eliakim, who was over the household, and Shebna, the secretary, and the senior priest, covered with sackcloth, to the prophet Isaiah, the son of Amaz. He knows he needs a word from the Lord. He wants to hear from God, so he sends for God's mouthpiece, the prophet Isaiah. Look at verses 2 and 3. So he sent Eliakim uh, to him, and they said to him, Thus says Hezekiah, this day is a day of distress, of rebuke and disgrace. Children have come to the point of birth, and there is no strength to bring them forth. The situation is dire indeed. Hezekiah is basically saying to Isaiah, Look, we tried and we failed. We thought we were being so clever how we found all the gold in the treasury at the temple and we gave that to, to Sennacherib, it didn't work. We've tried following our own ways and it hasn't worked. It has not worked out and now we have nowhere else to turn. We, moreover, we failed as the people of God 
to do what God told us to do and be a conduit of his blessing to the world. We failed at delivering ourselves and delivering others. We were supposed to display God's goodness and glory to the rest of the world, and instead, we've gone after counterfeit gods. Hezekiah remembers that his calling as a part of the family of God is to honor the Lord above all. God's honor has been called out and attacked. Finally, Hezekiah realizes that a line's been crossed and it's their own fault. Look at what the officials say from uh, Hezekiah to Isaiah in verse four. It may be that the Lord your God will hear the words of the Rabshakeh, whom his master, the king of Assyria, has sent to mock the living God and will rebuke the words that the Lord your God has heard. Therefore, lift up your prayer for the remnant that is left. And finally, the promise of the Lord comes. The word of the Lord, mere word, is spoken through his prophet. Look at verses five and six. When the servants of King Hezekiah came to Isaiah, Isaiah said to them, say to your master, thus says the Lord, do not be afraid because of the words that you've heard with which the young men of the king of Assyria have reviled me. Behold, I will put a spirit in him so that he shall hear a rumor and return to his own land, and I will make him fall by the sword in his own land. Do not be afraid. You know, fear is such a great tool for fundraising and a great tool for getting elected, but it's a terrible tool for faith. Fear is a terrible tool for faith. The most repeated commandment in the whole Bible is what? Do not fear. Fear is a great manipulator that our enemy uses to keep us from living into the good ways of God. Spiritual people who live by faith in a supreme God need not be afraid. The New Testament tells us that perfect love casts out fear, that God has given us a spirit not of fear or timidity, but what? Of power and love and self-control. God will handle things. Of course, it may not be the way that we want. It says here that, you know, he's going to put a rumor into Sennacherib's heart. I, I would want fire from the sky to consume the entire Assyrian army, including the king. That's not what God does. He says, yeah, I'll, I'll take care of it. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to send a rumor to Sennacherib. I would have been like, man, I wanted to see like the, the sea come over them like the Egyptian army. God's solution is, is not to meet human force with more force. I don't know about you, but when God's worked in my life, it tends to be subversive. It's subtle. That's why he sent his only son to be born in a manger, not riding on a war horse. And yes, Sennacherib will die by the sword, but not for 20 more years. God will have his victory, but it's not like we'd want it. Mere words, remember? The mere words of a rumor that God plants in Sennacherib's heart lead him to go home and pack up his army and to head back to Assyria. And then eventually it leads to a violent assassination of the great king. Why is this story in the Bible? Why do we have this today? Because human skepticism still mocks God to this day. Because God's people still lose their nerve to this day. 
because we're still tempted to put our trust in things of iron instead of things belonging to the spiritual realm. Because God is still there. He's still with us, a very real and present ally for us in the very real and present hardships of this world. And not just an ally, a strong deliverer, if only we'll get real with him and throw ourselves before him in complete and utter dependence and trust. I've been thinking a lot about what it means to live as a spiritual person, because I'm so tempted to live as an, a pragmatic atheist so much of the time. If no one has ever questioned our sanity, we may not be as spiritual as we think. If no one's ever asked us for what First Peter says, the reason for the hope that is in us, then we may not be living as spiritual people. If our faith is simply something that we've added to our carefully cultivated plans to go to college and get the right job and marry the right person and have the right family and get the right house and drive the right cars and wear the right clothes. If, if our faith is just something that we've added to that, then we may not be spiritual people. If we truly have been born again into a living hope, delivered from death to life, then everything has changed for us. It's not God's job to ensure our safe, predictable, comfortable routines. It's actually, in fact, our job to prove how good and how real God is in the midst of a skeptical world. If that panics you today, if you think, oh man, I'm, I'm pretty much a pragmatic atheist too, my faith is pretty weak, that's okay. That's okay. We pray like the centurion prayed, Lord, help my unbelief. Instead of looking inward, let's look upward today. Instead of looking at our inadequacy, let's look at his endless sufficiency. Instead of looking at our abilities, let's look at his sovereign power. Instead of looking at our plans, let's look at his promises and how he's proved himself over and over. We find a whole new kind of courage when we learn to think in terms of God first. We're never gonna live into all that God has for us, neither as individuals nor as Woodmont Baptist Church if we're not spiritual people. I can't tell you how grateful I am for our small group leaders, for our committee leaders, for our deacon leaders who are spiritual people who pray with their small groups, not because it's a time to gossip and share prayer requests. Well, the lady across the hall from me got a new, you know, that's not what it's for. They pray, our, our, our committee leaders pray because they believe it changes things. They believe because we're dependent upon the Lord. They pray because they believe we need God to move. I'm so grateful for the spiritual people in this church, and I'm trying to be one of them. In whom do we now trust? Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you that you have given us unlimited spiritual resources in you, that by putting our trust in you, you promise to protect us from all evil and all harm. That doesn't mean that we're not gonna have tribulation, but we will have a savior who has overcome the world. God, I thank you for the gifts that are ours 
through your grace, through our relationship with you, through Jesus Christ, our Lord. That your sovereign power means that our own inadequacy is not a problem. It means that you will win in the end. That we know how this whole thing plays out. We know where all this is going. We know that of all the frustrations in this life, God, that you don't waste any pain. You are working all things together for the good of those who love you and are called according to your purpose. You are working out your good plans to make earth less like hell and more like heaven. You are working out your good purposes as we move towards one day when all things will be made new once and for all. And you will wipe away every tear and there'll be no more death and no more disease. God, until that day, may we faithfully play our part in the good purposes you have for us by learning to trust in you completely. God, you are, are more than a great ally. You tell us that you are our, our brother, that we're fellow heirs with Christ, that we are, have such a friend in Jesus that we can completely and fully come to you as a good father. As, as one of my friends said today, the, the word for today is Abba, Daddy. You're our dad. You're our good, 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 good father. And we love you. We pray these things in the powerful name of our Savior, Jesus Christ, your Son. Amen. Amen. We're going to have time of response now. If you've never surrendered, if you've never thrown yourself prostrate before the sovereign Lord, who is a good Father, probably because you feel inadequate, guess what? You are inadequate. <laughs> so am I. We're all painfully, woefully inadequate. But that's the beauty of it. You're more accepted and you're more loved than you ever could have imagined. God knows your every weakness, and, and in spite of all those, maybe even because of all those weaknesses, he longs to save you and to bring you into his family. If you've been too far outside of God's will and you're ready to make that decision today, I'd love to talk with you about that right here. Maybe you're ready to join Woodmont Baptist Church and be a part of this family of faith. No matter what it is that you need to decide today, don't leave this place without having dealt honestly. Uh, like Ahaz went into the house of the Lord, not Ahaz, Hezekiah, went into the house of the Lord to get real with God. Uh, this is your moment to do that right now. Will you stand and sing our hymn response together?